Hey everyone, I'm Brenda and I'm Julia and you're listening to Roaring Twenties Podcast. Your 20s are known as both the most exciting and most confusing years of your life. We're here to share our stories, to have real and raw conversations, and best of all, to make you feel a little less alone. This podcast was brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Roaring Twenties Podcast. Today we have on with us Elizabeth Beisel. Guys, I'm so excited. We have such good questions for her. She is an Olympic swimmer. I'm just going to say a couple of her accolades, just a few. She's a three-time Olympian, a two-time Olympic medalist for swimming, a U.S. team captain, and she holds a total of 12 U.S. national titles. No big deal at all. Those are just a few. She has more. I'll let her mention the ones she won. But Elizabeth, we're so excited to have you. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much, you two, for having me. I'm obviously super excited as well. I cannot wait to answer all the questions that you have and hopefully give you some insight onto who I am, USA Swimming, all that good stuff. Yes, we can't wait. So let's jump in. Elizabeth, introduce yourself for us. Tell us a little bit about you, who you are, where you're from, and how old you are. Okay, perfect. So hello, everybody. Again, my name is Elizabeth Beisel. I I'm born and raised in Rhode Island, and that's kind of where I got my start in swimming. Joined my first swim team when I was five years old, and pretty much the rest was history. I no longer swim. I am obviously still in the swimming world. I work very closely with USA Swimming and their foundation, but I'm 28 years old, and I retired swimming three years ago, so it's crazy to say that I retired swimming at 25, but... That's kind of the term that we use. Oh, in we're going to get into that because I'm yeah, very curious about that yeah. whole thing. I took a little hiatus from living in New England in the cold. I moved down to Florida. I went to school at University of Florida for seven years. I was in school for four, but then stayed for another three to train professionally as a uh, professional swimmer. And now I'm back up in Rhode Island and I am super happy to be here. This is home and it always will be. Amazing. I've actually never been to Rhode Island and it's not that far from New York. You're in New York. I know. I know. She's yelling at me. (laughs) No, no, no. I have to go. It's on the list um, when, when it's like, you know, safe again. Totally. I actually went to Rhode Island last year with my boyfriend and we went in like the November, second week of November time. So it was freezing. Like we, <laughs> we got out. Yep. Um, we're like, oh, maybe we could do one of those like um, a, 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 a boat ride or something. And then we left dinner and we were like, <laughs> we're going back to the hotel actually. <laughs> yeah, we're not doing that. Wait, where did you guys stay? Were you in Newport? Oh, we, yes, we stayed in Newport Pelham Hotel or something. Oh, oh my God, so cool. It was super cute though. Like there was still enough to do. It was a super cute town. We loved it. But I was like, we got to go. It seems like the place to be in the summer. Summertime spot for sure. And early fall. We get really beautiful foliage. Ugh. Kind of like tourist season dies down a little, little bit. So it, gets, mm. it becomes a little bit more local. But yeah, it's summertime is by far the best time of year to come visit. All right. It's on the list. Top so cool. of the list. It's on the list, you guys. <laughs> so taking it back to you, Elizabeth, um, I know you mentioned that you started swimming early on, but when did you know that you wanted to be a swimmer? Like when did it go from a hobby to training to be an Olympian? Yeah, I think, you know, it's different for everybody. And I always kind of warn everybody when I tell people my story, because my story is different than everybody's in that I got really good at swimming within the first year or two that I started. So at seven years old, I started breaking national records. Like I was the fastest little kid in the country. Um, And then, you know, at 11 years old, I won junior nationals, which was I was the youngest person to ever win that. And then at 13, I made Team USA. 
as like a senior level swimmer. And so I was also the youngest person to ever do that as well. So for me, I kind of knew that the Olympics was always on the radar for me, but, and I, and I think I speak for every Olympian out there, you know that it's a possibility, but you don't actually believe it until you do it. And I say that because I did always believe I could, but the moment that I touched the wall and qualified for the Olympic team and saw that, that's when it finally registered that, wow, like I kind of knew I could do this, but wow, I really did do it. And I think that for me is the biggest dream come true moment makes all of the hours of training worth it. When like, you know, little Elizabeth had this dream of going to the Olympics, you know, watching the Olympics on television, just being an absolute awe of these athletes. And to finally make myself an Olympian, it was, it was crazy and humbling because I mean, one of the, one of my favorite things about the Olympics is going to the dining hall because it's literally everybody needs to eat. So you're going to see people like Usain Bolt, Serena Williams, Simone Biles, like casual, every super casual, like people that I literally have like posters of in my house and they have to eat. You have to go to the dining hall. And so Mm -hmm. for me, you know, I made my first Olympic team at 15. So I was a sophomore in high school. I was just a baby. And I'm now at the dining hall in the Olympic village with Usain Bolt in front of me. And it was kind of like this, whoa, outer body experience. Do I belong here? I feel like I have imposter syndrome right now. I was just um, going to ask about that. Like what was yeah. that, what, that first moment of stepping into the dining hall and like you said, or the touching the wall, being with those people for the first time, do you have imposter syndrome? Like, and how do you, how do you tell your, how do you ground yourself there? You absolutely have imposter syndrome because Especially for me being so young, yeah. You know, I I looked up to these people, and I still do, even now at 28 years old. But for me, I never really saw myself at that level, and I see these people having so much more experience under their belt. Where I'm like a deer in headlights. I'm trying to soak up every single person's demeanor or act, like behavior as possible because I want to be like them. And I later yeah. learned that you know, maybe what Michael Phelps does before his race isn't what I should be doing. And that's a hard thing to learn. But you know, when you're 15, I want to be like Michael Phelps. I want to be like my hero. So I'm kind of like trying to figure out what works for me, but still taking everything in. Um, It's a very, very overwhelming experience. But that pretty much set me up really well for the next two Olympics that I went to because I had that experience under my belt and kind of became the veteran later on in my career. Yeah. Oh my God. I, I want to di- like dig a little bit into all of that, but I'm super curious because I feel like it's going to inform everything else. Like when you're in those intense training periods leaning, leading up to like the Olympics or, you know, whatever event it is, what are those days like? Like leading up, what's your, what, if you could like get specific and like outline the structure of your day, like food, even sleep, hours in the pool, what does that look like? Yeah, I think, you know, two to three days leading up to an Olympic race or a really important race, I shut my phone completely off. That is like the number one thing that I do. And pretty much all of us do it because it's such a distraction, especially these days with social media and stuff. You want to be, this is the most focused you will ever be in your life. And for us swimmers, you know, we don't have a world series every year. We don't have these massive NBA championships every year. We have the Olympics once every four years. And if we do not do well at those Olympics, guess what? The next 15 year old is going to come up and take our spot. And so 
it's really our one opportunity. It's it's the pinnacle of our sport. It's one chance we have to shine and get sponsorships and put our name out there and get on the medal stand. So I shut my phone off sleeping. I'm getting at least nine to 10 hours. I think especially those final few days, you need to bank as much sleep as you can because the night before an Olympic race, I'm telling you, none of us are sleeping. You're not like, sleeping. Like, yeah. We are not we are are resting like mummies in our bed but we're not sleeping Um, you know it's like literally the prior the previous four years are kind of flashing right in front of us and it's like all of those hours that I spent training all of the things I sacrificed come down to this four minute race that I'm about to swim tomorrow and it's extremely daunting it's in front of millions of people on television Mm -hmm. thousands of people in the stands you know you have your entire hometown cheering for you. So yeah, the night before, you better hope that you have some sleep banks from the previous night. <laughs> um, and then eating, you know, for swimmers, we taper, which means we bring down the amount of volume that we swim when we get closer to our race to oh, rest our bodies, yeah. to prepare ourselves. Um, and so with that, we also kind of bring down the amount of food that we eat because we're spending less energy. So we don't need to feed ourselves as much. And, you know, being a swimmer, that's, that's saying something because we eat a ton. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, it would be a very normal day of me eating right now, the day before my race. So I would wake up, I would have, I don't like swimming on a lot of food. So I love to make a smoothie, something high calorie, but low volume um, Mm -hmm. with maybe some protein powder, blueberries, banana, almond milk. I try to stay away from dairy personally. That's just how my body works. Mm -hmm. Um, And then lunch is normally some type of whole grain, whether that's a sandwich or a pasta definitely a ton of veggies and maybe a lean meat like chicken or salmon and same goes for the night and normally the night before I don't have that much of an appetite so if I'm struggling with taking food in I go for high calorie foods whether that's like a cliff bar or something to at least make sure that I have food in my system to race the next day Um, because I'm somebody that deals with a lot of nerves and my nerves definitely hinder my ability to eat some people are like that mm-hmm. um but mm-hmm. yeah it's it's pretty much just like you're swimming a loose 30 to one out 30 minute to one hour swim um a few days leading up to your race and then race day you get up you eat your breakfast if you can um, <laughs> and you go to the pool you do your warm-up and that's pretty much game time and and again like i said my phone is on airplane mode so the only thing that i can do is listen to music and talk to teammates, which is kind of how I calm myself down before a race is just remind myself that I have all these friends that support me. I've done the work, listen to some music to pump me up and then pray that it all works out. Yeah. Wow. That was super specific. And I very much appreciate that. I think our listeners were too, just to get like a glimpse on what that looks like. And I think it's really interesting to hear like shutting your phone off for that extended period of time, because I I can love that. I love that. And I can imagine that for a lot of people, they're like, "Mm, could I do that? Which like, yes, in the circumstances you would, but I think it's that reminder too, that like not everything is incredibly pressing. Like we're in this world where everything feels urgent and everything needs immediate attention. But I love Love how much power you put to just focusing on you, getting yourself grounded. And through everything that you shared, the biggest word that came to mind for me was pressure, 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 comparison, stuff like that. So how do you, beyond the phone thing, which is huge, how do you combat that pressure of like, you have four minutes to shine and you spend all this time like leading up to that preparing? How do you ground yourself, I guess? It's hard for sure. And and any Olympian that says it's easy is either superhuman or just lying to you. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, like even, uh, you know, and I've had this talk with Michael Phelps so many times, like one of the, the greatest, in my opinion, Olympians mm -hmm. to ever walk this earth. And he deals with nerves. And it was something that took me a while to deal with. You kind of learn based off of your own experiences of what works yeah. for you, what doesn't work for you. And, you know, for Michael, he loves to put on his big headphones, sit in a corner and be alone. And mm -hmm. that's how he combats those nerves. For me, I like a little bit of music, but what helps me most is sitting and having a laugh with one of my teammates yeah. and kind of just loosening me up. And, you know, it's one of those things that I go back to. In 2008 Olympics, I was doing what Michael was doing and it didn't yeah. work for me. And it was kind of like, wait, why didn't that work? Like Michael Phelps does that. It should work for me. And it took me a couple years to realize that every routine is different. Every human being is different. So maybe I can take something from Michael, but I don't need to exactly mirror what he's doing so it's definitely experience based you learn from your mistakes you figure out what works it's all trying trial and error but the nerves i will say honestly they never go away you just get better at dealing with them wow that's so powerful. Yeah, yeah, I think that yeah. that's really important. And, you know, obviously something as big as the Olympics is, there's there's more pressure there. Like you said, it comes once every four years. But I think a lot mm -hmm. of times people, we get so caught up in our nerves. And like, to know, like, the nerves might always be there. You just have to find mm -hmm. what works for you to deal with them. And that what works for one person is going to be different than what works yeah. for you. And Brenda and I talk a lot about morning routines because we're big believers in like setting mm -hmm. up your day the right way. And we always say like, okay, these are our routines, but what works for us is going to be different for somebody else. And you can't try to just copy what somebody else is doing. Right. Mm -hmm. because you think that that's the way you have to it's trial and error sometimes exactly. to find what works for you yeah. exactly and we always touch on we say like these are all things for you to just get an idea because a lot of times i listen to podcasts and stuff to learn something new and to take what mm -hmm. works for me or take something i'm interested in and then leave what i don't and i think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to of course like someone like Michael, Michael Phelps, like it's someone who, you know, is the epitome of greatness and in, in this and that, like you right. want to take things and say, oh, well, if you're trying to accomplish something, try and learn from someone who has done something like that. But right. I think really acknowledging that human part in us and that we're, we are different. Mm -hmm. and, and just like you said, kind of taking, taking what works for us, but kind of going off of that a little bit and switching gears with, with like your time and stuff like that. Was there time for you with friends, like relationships, parties and stuff like that growing up? Like how did you deal with having to make sacrifices from a young age in order to achieve your incredible goals? Yeah, it's, it's definitely hard. Um, I was lucky in that swimming was like the dream for me. And it was almost like everything else was kind of in the way of that dream. And I mean that in like the best way possible. I was yeah. just unnaturally a driven human being. But I also pride myself on how normal I am and was growing up through the sport. And totally. I made time for friends. And yes, I had a very tight friend group at swim because that's who I was spending most of my time with. But I was going to prom still. Like I was doing all of the things that high school students do. Like I didn't go get homeschooled because I wanted to go to the Olympics. You know, I still went to school. I still had to make up tests that I missed for swim meets. You know, it was a very normal childhood and I had balance. And I think that's one of the things that helped me most now without swimming because I did have a life outside of swimming. Yeah. And I see that so often in kids that show promise in the sport. And, you know, I'll travel and do clinics. And oftentimes parents will come up to me and say, you know, Elizabeth, my child's really good. She might go to the Olympics one day. You think she should move and become homeschooled and swim on 
this person's team? Mm. And my answer is always, absolutely not. I come from the state of Rhode Island, where the last Olympic swimmer before me was in 1948. Oh my God. So I cannot tell you how many times people came up to me and said, oh, Elizabeth, you want to go to the Olympics? You need to move to Florida or you need to move to California where all the swimmers live and train. And my parents were like, uh, no, absolutely not. You're not moving to go to the Olympics. Like, sorry, this is where we work. This is where we live. If you want to do it, you can do it here. And I did. And, you know, I put in the work, I put in the sacrifice, but I also had a sense of normalcy, normalcy instilled within me. And that's thanks to my parents, thanks to my coaches. Like they didn't allow swimming to suck me into the small vacuum that it is. And I love swimming. It's who I am. It's what I've always known. But it is a tight knit bubble. And you can sometimes get caught up in that. And I was lucky enough to have adults around me that noticed or knew that I couldn't get sucked into that because then I would burn out and end up hating the sport. And so I'm fortunate I had that guidance. I feel like it's that pressure thing again. It's like if you eliminate everything else in your life, like friends or school, like and, and then that time comes like the amount of pressure because now you have nothing. Exactly. Just that. And I mean, I can only imagine, you know, the pressure that's already there. And then that on top of it, and and especially if it's like your parents made so many sacrifices for you to move and they had to pick up their life and move, like that's a lot of pressure for anybody to handle, especially a kid. Exactly. And and to that point, you know, what if you get injured? What if something crazy like COVID happens and there's a pandemic and you can't swim? You know, where is your source of happiness coming from now that you don't have swimming? And that was always something that was in the back of my head where, yes, swimming was always number one for me, but I always had a number two and three and four to fall back on. God forbid something happened. And that was, that almost made me to love swimming even more because I knew it wasn't like the end all be all of my life. Yeah, I'm really interested in that, Elizabeth, like in terms of identity, you know, uh, me and Brenna talk a lot and have interviewed a lot of people about like we put we in the way our society works right now, like so much of us identify as our work and how important it is to let that not be your identity. That could be a part of your identity, but your work is not who you are because like you said, like that could go away. So how did you like find identity or or hold on to identity outside of swimming and then especially later on like outside of that the medals the accolades yeah so when I was growing up younger you know violin and piano and music were like my first love so I started playing violin when I was three piano when I was five and I did all that before I joined the swim team so (laughs) as far as I'm concerned I was always a musician before I was an athlete um and that was that was my sense of balance in life you know I was in the orchestra like I played classical music like I was kind of a nerd in that sense but I loved it and it was like if I had a bad practice I could go home and play piano or play violin whatever it was and so for me that kind of helped me guide guide through my entire swimming career in a very positive way but after the medals and after just my swimming career in general ended it was like trying to reinvent myself as much as I had music and as much as I knew I wanted to go into media there was still like a point where I looked at myself in the mirror and I was like my resume says nothing you know mm-hmm. like people hiring me do not care what my 400 IM time is. They do not care. And that's a scary reality to face because that's all I knew for 25 years was I could swim a lot faster than everybody else. I know how to work hard, but 
how does that translate onto a resume in layman's terms? Like, how do I sell myself now as a non-athlete? And I had nothing to put on there, you know? So that was really hard. And so what I started doing was I kind of just started saying yes to everything. I put myself out there. I was like, hey, I want to one day be a commentator in swimming. I want to do media. I love sports. I'm cool with being in front of the camera. Let me commentate this local swim meet for you for free. Let me write this article on you for free. And wow. it was kind of like that snowball effect. Like it was a hustle for a couple of years. And I, I, you know, I had so much support from USA Swimming. I, I have to note that. And Speedo, who was my sponsor while I was swimming, and that they would really help me out and get stuff like that. Yeah. But it was a hustle. It was all for free, you know, at first. And then that kind of turned into me having a little bit of a highlight reel and I could send that in or get an audition here. And that ultimately ended up to what I'm doing today. And I basically freelance for ESPN, NBC, like all of these amazing corporations that I never dreamed of myself working for. But it's like I put in the work, you know, for three years. It was just like, all right, another free thing to do. Like, I'm going to do it. Um, I really feel that on a deep level. (laughs) You know, like we all have to hustle and eventually it's going to pay off. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly hard reinventing yourself, especially in a sport like swimming where you have to invest so much time and energy into it for such little reward. And mm-hmm. I say that meaning, you know, I'm I'm not a LeBron James. I'm not set for life after my swimming career. Even though I've been to three Olympics and I have multiple Olympic medals, I kind of have to go back to the drawing board and yeah. walk into the real world, you know, nobody cares. Um, so <laughs> care. that's kind of the care. summer thing. But yeah, yeah, I know, I know, but you know what I, you know what I mean. No, of course. And <laughs> yeah. that makes so much sense. And like Julia said, we do talk a lot about identity and that key that you said there about reinventing yourself. I think something that I note in your story and your approach was that I feel like a lot of people ultimately end up feeling lost and like they don't know who they are or what they can offer and all that stuff. And I feel such an energy of like a magnetic energy and confidence and self-belief from you, which we definitely want to jump into because I think that that's something that a lot of people struggle with, especially now with like comparison and social media. So it's, it's so beautiful and cool to see that, you know, regardless of all the incredible accolades that you have, that you still found that self-belief and self-worth and we're like, you know what, like this was a beautiful chapter of my life. And now like, here I am, here's the next chapter. And I'm going to just put myself out there and I have an idea of where I may go, but I'm just going to say yes to things and see where it takes me because regardless, I'll have an answer. And I think we have like this pressure of not knowing where to start, where to go, but just doing something and seeing where it takes us is so powerful. So being that we touched a little bit on self-belief, how important do you think self-belief is and how do we kind of garner that? Do you think that's the same as confidence? Because I know you mentioned like having nerves, which are normal, but you Mm -hmm. learn to cope with differently. But it seems like you always came back to having belief in yourself that you were capable. Yeah, I think honestly, I'm so glad you brought this up because when I talk, whether it's public speaking or at a clinic with little kids, believing in yourself is my number one topic because I truly believe that sets apart the good athletes from the great athletes or from the good employees from the great employees. Because at the end of the day, we are, and I'll talk in swimming terms, you know, we all put in the same amount of yardage in the pool. We may have different levels of talent, but we all work hard. We're all doing the right thing. And if you're stepping up behind the block, not confident and not believing in yourself, and the person next to you is confident and does believe in themselves, they might not be as talented as you, but they are going to beat you 10 times out of 10. And that's because mindset before a race or mindset before anything that you're about to do, whether it's a presentation or whatever it is, you need to be positive because 
your body is, it's literally scientifically proven that your body is going to react the way that your mind tells it to. So if I'm stepping up behind the blocks and I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm so nervous. I don't know if I can do this. I'm racing the world record holder next to me and the defending Olympic champion. Like, oh, I hope I don't embarrass myself. Guess how I'm going to swim? I'm going to swim exactly like that. Yeah. Bashful, not confident. I'm going to basically hand the race over to the two people next to me. And guess what? The two people next to me could be sick that day. And like, don't even want to swim. And I've just given up a huge opportunity for me to actually shine and do something special. And so my thing with swimming is that you can only control what you do in your lane. Forget about everybody else. You don't know how they're feeling, if they're nervous, how they're feeling, if they're sick. Like, if you have done the work, and this is like not even just sports related, anything. If you have put in the time and you know that you have genuinely and honestly done yourself good you deserve to succeed and I think that's one of the biggest things that I learned to tell myself before my race was I would oftentimes have nerves and feel like oh like I don't know about today and they'd be like whoa, whoa, whoa wait like you spent 40 hours this week staring at a black line swimming <laughs> you deserve this yeah. like I need to let this hard work shine because If I don't now, then when? And I think self-belief and confidence, especially amongst women, if we have that, we are the most powerful creature out there. Oh my goodness. Like if I had Serena Williams confidence walking down the block every day, like forget about it. You know, it exudes. And I think it really mirrors the way that I would race. If I was confident and knew I could do it, I would win. And that is the one thing that was, it was like the only thing that changed before my race. Was I confident or was I not? And that directly affected the outcome of my results. Oh, I, I love that (laughs) so much. Me and Brenna just did, we talk, one, we talk about self-talk all the time. Two, just did a whole episode on chanting because we're like really big into like chanting, hyping yourself up. (laughs) I'm literally behind the blocks. Like, you are the best, Elizabeth. You've got this. You deserve this. <laughs> your entire body chemistry. Like you can feel yourself. Like even the three of us right now, like we're getting I know, I feel it. up. Because- I'm like sweating in my sweater. Yes. <laughs> in her really cute chunky sweater. Like you, it changes your body chemistry. And it's, it's so funny because it's, it's free. It's easy. We can all do it, but we get in our heads and we like don't do those little things that we can do that really could have you win or lose the race. Absolutely. It's crazy. And did you ever have any like mantras, Elizabeth, or it was just like positive self-talk? It was always for me, positive self-talk and it changed every race because yeah. I would cater that positive self-talk to counter whatever the thought was in my head, you know, like, Oh, like I didn't sleep well last night. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's fine. You've slept had no sleep before and done really well. So you can do this again. Like you've been here before. It all depended on how I was feeling that day and what the story was that I was telling myself that wasn't true. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of have to like wake myself up and be like, Elizabeth, no, that's not true. Like you have done the work. You've, and it's different if you haven't done the work and you know that and then you're screwed. That's when you you can't lie to yourself in that situation. But if I wholeheartedly know that I've done the work and Mm -hmm. I'm just dealing with nerves, it's a lot easier for me to 
kind of changed that narrative inside my mind. But yeah, there, there was no specific mantra. It was always just like, yeah. get the job done however I can. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. We, and I want why I wanted to bring it back to like confidence too, is because we're, we're always talking about like, well, what is confidence? And Ed Milet, he's like a podcaster and he says like confidence is like when you make yourself make yourself a, little prom- promise. a promise and then you keep it and it's doing the work if you say you're gonna go and you're gonna swim you know however many meters that day and then you do it you're confident because you kept that promise to yourself but if you say you're gonna go swim that many meters that day and then you don't go swim how are you gonna be confident in yourself because you couldn't you have to keep the promises that you make to yourself and it's like that's what confidence is. It's just keeping the promises that you make to yourself. And then, like you said, when it when it when when the time is there and the nerves are around and the outside forces are on you, it's coming back to you and you're not telling yourself lies. You're telling yourself mm-hmm. all of the truths. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I love that. Yeah. And kind of off going off of that, a lot of people we talk to, a lot of our friends, just I feel like it's a very general thing, struggle with holding themselves accountable to something, like setting a goal and then maybe sticking to it for a few days and then not. I feel like it's very in our nature to kind of do things like that. So what are your best tips for dedication and staying accountable? Um, and even I know, especially like a, a personal example, like there are certain days where I'll have a workout where I feel like at my highest energy and other days when I don't. And I think for a lot of people, it feels easier, not easier. People tend to give up and take that as a failure as opposed to seeing it as like forward motion. Yeah. I think for me, I remind myself of two things. The first thing, whenever I'm trying to learn something or start something new, create a new habit is that it takes 21 days to create a new habit. So it is okay if you're on day four and you're like, ooh, not feeling it today. You know why? Because it's not a habit yet. You still have to force yourself to go. And so I kind of always remind myself, I give myself that three week time period. I'm like, okay, just be really strong for these three weeks. Um, And then the second thing is I always try to remind myself of where I want to be. And I do that by doing things that my future self will thank me for. And so that is like, honestly, if I am having a day and and similar to me, you know, working out during quarantine was extremely hard for me. I am somebody that needs a coach yelling at me, telling me what to do. I'm not the type of girl to just go on a run and, oh, cool 10K in the book. No, that is no. not me. No. I sit on the couch before <laughs> I do that. Mm-hmm. And so during quarantine and, you know, the height of everything back in the spring, I... I had a really difficult time holding myself accountable, but it always came back to me being like, you know what? Future Elizabeth in one month is going to be so glad you took this journey because every time that you say, ah, no, I'll, I'll start again tomorrow. You're just wasting another day. You're putting that goal and that dream off or whatever it is for a longer time. And time is the one thing that none of us are really guaranteed. And so for me, it's, it's really doing the most with the time that you have right now and making sure you're setting your future self up for greatness and for happiness and confidence or whatever it is that you're trying to go for. Um, those are those are the two things that I always try to stay true to when I'm picking a new habit up. I yeah. love those. So important. That's so important. Definitely. I feel like just so many people and I've experienced it too, where I'm like, oh yeah, I'll do this. And then, you know, something comes up. But I guess my question for you on that is like, how do you, like just hearing you talk about it, you approach it so logically. You're like, okay, like this is how long it takes to build a new habit. Like you just got to show up for this amount of days. How do you detach any emotion to it? 
um, to something like that. Cause I feel like a lot of us tend to, like I said, start something and then feel like, Oh, you're a failure. I'm not consistent. I can't stay stick to anything. You know what I mean? And then kind of take it as a type of identity thing, as opposed to part of the human experience and just kind of learning to cope with it better. Yeah. I think, you know, it differs for everybody. Some people are like, oh, I'm going to start a diet and they're great at it. You know, they have no problem. Um, I'm definitely not like that. I, whether it's a diet or learning something new or trying to pick up an, a, a new running habit, whatever it is, I I try to like give myself grace and realize that, hey, not every day is going to be amazing. Let's let's recognize that you're a human. And then, you know, take those bad days and try to work through them as much as you can. And that was something that I always did while I was swimming was trust me, I had more days that I didn't want to work out at the pool than I did. But I swear those days that I went and I persevered and I pushed through are the days that actually ended up making me better. Yes. Um, and, and I think that's, that's important to remember too, is like showing up sometimes is the hardest part. And then yeah. once you get there, you kind of are, are like, okay, like maybe I'll give yeah. this a go. And then you start to feel good. And so on the days that I absolutely do not want to go out for a workout or for a run or whatever it is, I'm like, okay, deep breath, just put on your shoes and start walking. And then if in the middle of your walking, you feel like maybe starting to trot a little bit or a jog, that's great. But at least like I got out there. And so it, it really is giving yourself grace and being patient with yourself. But on the flip side of that coin too, also being honest with yourself. Like if you're on day 10 of going out for a walk when you should really be going out for a run, maybe it's time to like pick it up a little bit or look yep. yourself in the mirror and say, okay, the fun is over. Let's, let's kick yep. it into gear. But I think, you know, an occasional day or three when you're not feeling it is fine. It doesn't mean you're a failure. It means yeah. you're a human and it's yeah. part of that journey that's going to make the end goal even more sweet. Yeah. Uh, yes. I love that. And I love that you said that you normalize not only the human experience, but that you kind of touched on, you know, not relying on motivation. And for you, someone who I'm sure people look up to so much for like the excellence that you bring to what you're talented in um, at swimming. I don't know why I went around that so much. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like it's a secret, right? Um, <laughs> that to, to really like, know, like you're not naturally motivated 100% of the time. And that's a human no. thing, but being committed to that process, and showing up anyway and then the motivation comes as a result of you proving to yourself that you can do hard things or things you don't want to do naturally so I think that's gonna be really helpful and you we we all have those experiences on the days that we like didn't want to do that thing and then you you feel so good after and you're like I'm so glad I did that I feel like I do that every day like every day I'm like I don't want to do today and then at the end of the day I'm like look at all the things I did I'm so glad I did them all I and you'll never regret it you never. will never regret it. Yep. Even if it's not your 100% best that day, you're at least going to be able to say, well, at least I did it. At least, you know, yeah. I did this piece of it. And it's yeah. so rewarding. I want to ask Elizabeth about when it comes to physical health, mental health, as an athlete, how are you taking care of your of your body and also your mind because you know we, we've mentioned all the stress all the pressure all the long hours I, I imagine you have to work hard at doing both things yeah so it's it's kind of crazy like early on in my olympic career this was now 12 14 15 years ago mental health was still kind of taboo in the swimming oh. world it wasn't spoken about it wasn't addressed it was kind of like you showed up you grinded the yards out you raced and that was it like there was no mental health aspect 
of the sport. Since then, thanks to people like Alison Schmidt and Michael Phelps and a ton of other, Missy Franklin, speaking out on mental health, it has really kind of brought that into the spotlight, which is so needed because a lot of us were dealing with mental health issues that we didn't even know were mental health issues because we weren't educated on it. It wasn't something that was offered to us. And so for me, now that I'm actually aware of my mental health and, you know, what makes me have a bad day or what triggers me, I, you know, I do try to meditate a ton. That's kind of the one thing that I try to do every single day just to like keep myself at peace. But it is, it's really hard, especially as an athlete, because you're dealing with the highest pressure. And when you're at the Olympics, like I thought Michael Phelps and I, I keep referencing him just because he's a dear friend of mine but also such an amazing example because he's a superhero but also a human and you know watching him in 2008 win eight gold medals was the most incredible thing I've ever seen but I also felt like this aura of stress oozing out of his body I felt like if there was just one wrong move he was going to break yeah and that's because he was under so much stress and we probably weren't dealing with his mental health in a way that we should have been. And I think now that mental health is a lot more out there and known about, and we see sports psychologists, we take care of our mind just as much as our body. Crazy. Our swimming's getting faster. (laughs) We're healthier. We're happier. And it's just like, it's, I mean, and it's with anything, you know, we're constantly evolving as humans, we're learning more about our bodies and our minds. And so I think, you know, for me, mental health is the most important aspect of anything that you do. Because if you're not happy at your job, or with your spouse, or in your sport, or wherever it is, you're never going, you're going to reach a ceiling. And you're never going to get past that ceiling. And I think wholeheartedly, it, it might be a little selfish, but you cannot possibly think about helping others or being good for others until you're good with yourself and you're 100% with yourself. And so for me, I, I do wish mental health were more of, and there, it was more emphasized while I was swimming, especially those younger years. But now it's, it's pretty amazing to see, you know, some of my former teammates now being consultants to these athletes and help and therapists to these athletes, helping them get through what they went through without the help. And it's making all of us better as human beings and as people within the swimming world. So it's as important, if not more important than physical health. And I think that's really, really, it's, that's how it is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we, we put such an emphasis on that. And that's a really big part of our mission is trying to kind of shift the narrative around mental health. And luckily, it is getting a lot more attention now, like you mentioned, but we have this like, we, we posted about it, I think maybe even today about you don't have to have it all together. And I know for us, like we always felt this pressure of like wanting to constantly be achieving and showing this like overachieving side of us. And then we realized that once we like started breaking down our walls and showing the most vulnerable pieces of ourselves, it just made other people feel less alone, feel more connected because they're like, oh, <laughs> I'm not alone in this at all. Like this is a normal experience. Or if it's not, you know, like you said, taking care of your mental health, I think we have this idea that we only can should take care of it if something's broken quote unquote there's air quotes but that like something just taking care of it in general and just making you know checking in on how you're feeling is so important so what are some tips for dealing with like losses or dealing with wins in terms of of how you've experienced that yeah I think I mean 
I always try to deal with a loss as a positive in that I'm learning more from my loss than I am my win mm-hmm. because losing means obviously I can get better. I can improve on something. And so I'll dissect that race down to each stroke and figure out was my start off, were my turns off, my breakout, my underwaters, like what was it that made me lose or not go as fast as I thought I could go. And then I would learn from that. And then with the win, that was kind of like less dissecting, less learning, but more just taking it in and being like, wow, like that was for all the work that I did. You know, I'm going to celebrate this, but I'm going to celebrate it humbly because I know that the next time I dive in for the race, it's not a guaranteed win. And so I think, you know, you take your wins with a grain of salt, you celebrate them, of course, but you also kind of want to behave as though you are the hunter. Um, that, that was at least how I worked. I hated being the hunted um, and kind of like, walking around like I'm the best like I don't know if I was I just felt like there was always somebody to be you know there was always somebody to go faster than whether that was myself or a competitor there was always something to get better at Mm -hmm. um so I think if you're just constantly trying to be the best version of yourself you're always going to have something to work on right like perfection is I don't know I've never been perfect in my life so I'm anybody who is no, exactly. Like everybody is a work in progress. And so I think if you can really take it down to the nitty gritty parts of where you want to improve and where you think you can get better and you commit yourself to that, you have a lot of room for improvement. And that's to go for anything in life, not just swimming. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's so important. And and I love what you said about that your losses were as informative as your wins. And I think if we shift our talking back about shifting your mindset, yeah. how how beneficial it is to tr- at least try to shift our mindset that way. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's not up. easy, right? Like oh. I'm not sitting here being like, oh yeah, just just learn from your loss. Right, right. No, yeah. like it's going to take some work, it's but hard. I'm here to tell you, and you guys are here to tell everybody that it's, it is worth it. It's hard, but yeah. it's worth it. Absolutely. Asking ourselves like what, like kind of trying to look at things with the perspective of why, like this is happening for me and what can I get out of this experience? Yeah. Exactly. yeah. I want to move in to talk a little bit about what you're doing now post post retirement elizabeth but i, I want to touch we i know we talked about it a little bit before but i do want to just touch on retirement for you again because you said it was 25 when you retired yep yeah so i'm 25 and we're, we're i'm not retired yet <laughs> i'm i'm definitely not retired <laughs> I'm far from it but that's why i want to talk about this because it's like we're all on our own timelines like we're all on our own journeys and i feel like a lot of women at 25 are still really figuring it out but but i feel like you kind of had your own need to figure it out again at 25 even though you had this whole life beforehand but at that turning point did you have you know there's like that astronaut syndrome that they talk about have you ever heard of it no no they're like there's this thing with astronauts that like once they come back from space they're all really depressed because they'll never do anything as big as going to space Mm -hmm. um so was did you deal with that a little bit at that point and then like yeah how did you deal with that no i that's actually crazy that you say that because i absolutely dealt with that Mm -hmm. and every olympian especially olympic sports like swimming track and field gymnastics people that where their pinnacle is the olympics yeah i would say we all deal with it just on different levels and that 
we reached the highest of the highs in our sport. And how will I ever simulate that in another chapter of my life? Like, like how am I, how and what? Because I've been doing this since I could remember for 20 years, I've dedicated my entire life to this. And now I have to start from ground zero. And it's kind of daunting to think, oh my gosh, like I'm not going to be at this level of happiness and stimulation for another, if it goes the way that it did for swimming, another 20 years. And that puts me at 45 and that's a kind of scary thought. Um, so it's, I think we all deal with it. Absolutely. I dealt with it. For me, it was kind of accepting it. And it kind of goes back to the mental health mind, mind shift thing where, all right, swimming is over. I accept this. I physically cannot swim anymore. This is finally off the table. Now, what makes me tick? You know, what is going to make me feel fulfilled at the end of the day? And I realized that that was still being in the swimming world because that's what I love, but just not swimming. And I found ways to do that. You know, working with the USA Swimming Foundation on a daily basis, working in NBC and sports and ESPN and commentating little swimmies around the town, whatever it was. But it was just finding my small way of still loving what I loved, but doing it in a different way. Yeah, I love that. I think the thing that we hear a lot of like our friends and peers talk about at this age, this like, you know, post-grad age is that like people are discovering that what they went to school for and spent four years doing and maybe like their whole life thinking they were going to do is actually not either like what they want to do actually or is not working out or whatever and need to kind of make a change and I we see so many people in our in our lives at this age like struggling with like needing to let go of the person they were and thought they were going to be and needing to come into this person that they, that the universe is now telling them they're to become. And I, it's, I love to hear your experience with it, especially because it's like, you you did it all, you did it all. And and now it was time to do something new. And it's, I think it's just a great example for anybody that's at like a precipice of change. Definitely. Yeah. And Elizabeth, for the sake of time to respect your time, you've given us so much. Tell us about your book. How exciting. (laughs) The book is awesome. So it was released in February. It's called Silver Lining. And it's a little play on words. Silver was the first Olympic medal that I won. And then I think I just love the phrase silver lining because it's always finding something good within a bad situation, no matter what it is. And I feel like that was a resounding theme throughout my entire swimming career where Maybe from the outside looking in, you thought I was always winning and going best times and super happy, but the book really dove into the behind the scenes that you never saw, that NBC never aired while watching the Olympics. So it's raw, it's honest. It's, oh, yeah, it's it's a super easy read. People are like, yeah, I read it in like a day. Like it's, it's a very, it flows really well. Um, and it's not too swimming heavy, meaning like the jargon isn't all swimming terms. It's, it's meant to read for anybody, but it, it was a very cathartic experience writing it because it was a trip down memory, memory lane that I hadn't taken that in depth ever before. And, you know, I'm interviewing coaches and past teammates and people that I cross paths with in the swimming world and getting their 
accounts on what happened and this particular story. So, and I think it's just a cool book that gives you an inside look on what it is like to be an Olympic swimmer or just an Olympic athlete in general. And it, and it is, like I said, raw and honest. So it's not like all rainbows and butterflies. There is certainly some amazing moments. Like you'll, you'll feel really good at the end of the book. Like it's yes. a feel good ending. I'll only tell you that, but it is, it's a great book to read if you want a little bit more insight on what it is to be an athlete and the sacrifice and all the things that go along with it are. Oh my God. I can't wait to read it. I'm sure after hearing you talk, Elizabeth, literally everybody's going to read it. <laughs> oh, um, thanks. But, <laughs> are you part of a, the swim initiative thing that's going on with the pools? Okay, <laughs> yes. With the pools. Obviously the swim initiative has pools. So basically, I, I'm an ambassador for USA Swimming Foundation. And this was one of the ways that USA Swimming graciously allowed me to stay involved with the sport without competing as an athlete. And so right now, the one campaign that we have going is saving lives is always in season, meaning that drowning doesn't stop because it starts to get cold out. Drowning doesn't stop because mm-hmm. COVID-19 or a pandemic. And so we are now pushing for pools to stay open or open in general. Um, especially during this season, because now is really the time to learn how to swim. Like, especially in places where we are in the Northeast, people swim outside mostly in the summer, mm-hmm. but you can't expect a child to learn how to swim in a week and then bring them to the beach and think they're fine. Yeah. And so you need to get kids into the pool now. And it's such an important thing to have all these pools open and you can do it safely. You know, you can have a face mask on. You can show up to the pool with your suit on, get into the pool. You don't even need to use the locker room. Um, there are so many ways to stay safe, especially amongst this COVID world that we're living in right now. Um, but I do, like, there are a couple stats that just really resonate with me that I want everybody to hear. So yeah, you share. swimming lessons reduce the risk of drowning by 88%. Wow. So 88%, that's, that's like... Every single day that your local pool is closed and your child isn't in the water getting swimming lessons means they're 88% more likely to drown. And so that's, if I have a child, that is staggering to me. Or if I don't know how to swim, that's also staggering to me as well. This isn't just for children. Mm -hmm. Um, 10 people every single day in the U.S. drown. Every single day. Um, And that's that's pretty scary. And if a parent doesn't know how to swim that child is 81% more likely to never learn how to swim themselves. So it's a generational thing. It's a family thing. And so basically what we're trying to do with the foundation is push local pools to stay open, get families in safely. Obviously we are in the middle of a pandemic, but the point is that saving lives is always in season. There is always a need for swimming lessons and every child in America deserves the opportunity to swim. And so What we do at the foundation is we provide funding all across the United States for children to get into the pool or maybe in underprivileged families or live in underprivileged areas where they wouldn't otherwise have the opportunity to swim. We put them into swimming lessons and then they are safe, safer around the water. We can't say that anybody is exempt or safe from drowning just because they know how to swim, but they are safer. And that is the biggest point. And so for right now, we're trying to work with local official, government officials and getting those pools open. It's just like, it's a cause near and dear to my heart because for me, I didn't get into swimming to become an Olympian. My parents taught me to learn how to 
swim because they didn't want me to drown. They wanted me safe around the water. And that's how every Olympian story starts. And so I think, you know, the more people that we can touch, the more lives we can save through swimming lessons. I'm, that's my way of giving back to the sport that gave me so much because the life is honestly the greatest gift that we have. And if swimming lessons can at least give you that, that's, I've done my job. I've done my work. Absolutely. Oh. It's so beautiful. (laughs) It is. It is. So again, you've given us so much and you've shared so many aspects of your story and I know you did as well in your book. So as we wrap up, what's one thing that your fans don't know about you? Ooh. (laughs) I think, well, I will say like, I don't know if many people know about music and me playing the violin and piano. That's I'm starting to become more like outward with it on social media and stuff. But oh my gosh. You're putting me on the spot. I don't know. Um, I guess maybe one like goal of mine in life is to go to Antarctica. And I feel like that's like kind of a weird thing. Like people are like, why do you want to go there? I would love to go to Antarctica. I love penguins. I love all that stuff. So maybe that's like my one weird fact. I I would love to go to Antarctica. So if anybody knows anything about going to Antarctica, let me know. Anyone want to sponsor her Antarctica trip? Because yeah, I, I have looked into it and it's extremely expensive. So yeah, if you have a, a discount code, let me know. <laughs> let us know. For sure. Incredible. Elizabeth, we just have two last questions for you before we let you go. Has there been any resource in your life? It could be a, a book, a person, a podcast that has helped guide you through your 20s thus far? Ooh, again. On the spot. Oh, I love the book, The Alchemist. Have you Ooh, guys read that? Yes. No. I love. Oh, I haven't. You need to read The Alchemist. Yeah. It is like, Brenda, it's something that I think I will probably, and I only read it, I first read it in quarantine back in like oh April. God. Well, the first time I'd read it, and it's definitely a book that I'm going to read every year of my life because it's like, you can read that book and be in any stage of your life and relate to it in a different way every single time that you read it. Wow. Like it is, you need to read it. The Alchemist is yeah. amazing. Yes. I, I love that book. I yeah. second that. No, yeah. thank you. I, I, def- I definitely will. We're, we're inspired today, you guys, adding to cart. <laughs> um, <laughs> and our last question for you is where can people find you if they want to connect with you, if they want to learn more about you, all the things. Perfect. Yeah. So my website is super simple, elizabethbeisel.com. And then it has all my social media links there. But I think that's kind of like the main source where you can find everything that you need. Awesome. And guys, get her book, follow her on Instagram, check out her website. Elizabeth, we cannot thank you enough. You were so incredible. This was so fun. You guys made my night. Thank you so much for having me. I'm like so happy right now. I feel it. (laughs) Goodbye, everybody. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to Roaring Twenties Podcast. Be sure to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and please subscribe. You're never alone. Our pride sticks together. Tune in every Monday and Thursday for new episodes of Roaring Twenties Podcast. You get to start your week with us and end your week with us. With love, Brenda and Julia.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.